from the Cumberland Plateau in the University of the South, this is the Swanee Review Podcast. Welcome to the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm Eric Smith, Managing Editor and Poetry Editor of the Magazine. I'm here today with Philip B. Williams, author of Thief in the Interior and a new collection of poems, Mutiny. A recipient of the Kate Tufts Discovery Award, a Lambda Literary Award, and a Whiting Award, he has also received fellowships from the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University and the National Endowment for the Arts. He's here with us in Suwannee as part of this year's Aiken Taylor Award in Modern American Poetry Celebration, having just delivered his lecture on the work of this year's winner, Vivi Francis. Philip, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was great. Thank you. I want to talk to you about so many things, <laughs> and I feel like this is a conversation I've been waiting to have with you since I first read Thief in the Interior. Today, I thought since Mutiny is new out in the world, and it's a fantastic collection. Thank you. I thought we'd mostly focus our attention today on your new book and your poems. I would like that, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> we usually start with a poem. Do you mind reading sure. poem from Mutiny? Yeah, I'll do final first poem. Final first poem. In the beginning, I suspect my index is on fire. Day starts spasmodic with hunger, my dull teeth catch on pale figures voweling from an empty heaven. God been left, bored too with ransom for art, illusions stacked like reluctant saints on a pyre. Eliot, Alighieri, Homer. The sun's glossy odyssey traces half-moon above the horizon, clefts these Alexandrine hours into shoddy boats I'm tired of drifting toward nothing on. There was once a sea, I begin, having never seen a sea nor been able to seem any time to once. Now, I sleep in a void documenting my rhyme-sourced wet dreams, and who would collect these metered christenings? I want to know what you must know. I own nothing impressive. No noctuaries of gallivanting steeds, no beloveds creeping from sun-bloodied water in a salt-stained stolen dress, no oceans from which she stole her voice to give to me to offer you slow-blinkingly, awaiting genius and a circle of rooks. All the crows have gone, my love, and all shovels cradling yarrow and jewels of beetles have rusted away, revealing my face all along held these things in unrequited climax to crown me king. The book is burning. Come, sit at my bedside. Let ash fill the fugue that was your need. Now, open your hands. Reader, read to me what you have stolen and called your life. Before we get to the poem, Mm -hmm. what I wanted to start with is Mutiny as a Collection. Mm -hmm. It's your second full-length book, and it's new out in the world. It's only a month old at this point. Yeah, a little just, it came out September 7th. Wow. Partly out of curiosity partly out of seeing the what to me is a natural evolution of your project from Thief in the Interior. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious at first about the collection when you first started to see the mutiny 
book or the or mutiny as a project start to take shape? When did you start to think this is what the next book is going to look like? There was an iteration of it, I think. I'm going to start lying, but probably 2016, but there weren't, it was not this at all. And it didn't have many poems. It was really just a way for me to keep poems from going missing in random folders. So I have files named something cute, and then I put poems in them so that they're not scattered in the ether of my hard drives. But it didn't really come into be what it is now until the top of 2020 in January. And I wrote in a span of two weeks, like 30 pages, because I hadn't been writing poetry for two years prior and I hadn't been reading it either. I was taking a break from it to read more prose and to work on a longer piece. And so it's not like the so-called muses came down and touched me. It had been cycling in my mind for years and it was just ready to come out in January. Clearly, your relationship to the work shifted a bit because you took Mm -hmm. a a break from it and you took a break, at least from your primary attention being poetry. Right, right. But what were some of your preoccupations when the project started to take shape? Started to take shape. I was angry. And I mean, I mean, anger is part of the the way they describe the book on the back of the book, right? And it's, but it's not a key word. It was the place that I was in and people asked, well, what were you angry about? I was like, what well, it wasn't there to be angry about. COVID had yet happened, at least to our knowledge. We, it was happening, but right. we didn't know, right? Right. But there were all of these things dealing with, with poetry and my distancing from it. And I was becoming more and more disillusioned by like, what is the poetry world? What is poetry? Pobius poetry business. And uh, I just wanted to see if I could write poems that could bring me back to a space where I could love it again. But if not, then at least to critique or evaluate where I was with these feelings. And, you know, to be mutinous against the institution as much as, you know, I can. I'm someone who likes to write in form. So, <laughs> I have, you know, there are fewer formal poems in the first book than there are in this one in as much as, you know, rhyme and they're being more tightly built. But, you know, the final poem series in the book is a big part of me, you know, trying to say goodbye to these very common, sometimes even stereotypically overdone tropes like the moon and the deer. And so I was just following this path of how to make something useful out of this negative space that I was in. It's such an interesting dichotomy to think about poetry, pobiz, yes. right? And the, and the sort of what the shape of American poetry looks like. Mm-hmm. And to think about the way in which this dichotomy between the marketing term of anger, even though in this case it was accurate, yes. there's a way in which that was then utilized as part of the way of shaping the book out in the world. Mm-hmm on shelf space and in people's imagination. Right, right. And that comes through in the book, absolutely, as one of the emotional touchstones from which a lot of these poems emanate. Mm. But at the same time, there is that other word you use, which is love. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there is this, I was so struck by poem by poem in the collection. What was clear to me is the attention you were paying to the thing that you were shaping on the page, whatever else it was shaped by, it was shaped by this attentive, at times very critical love and appreciation for a received history, for a present moment, for different kinds of violence done to bodies, different kinds of silences mm-hmm. that pressure bodies. And two, that tightening, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that restriction that you put on the poem is a kind of pressure, is a kind of torquing of language out of its usual pedestrian everyday shape right right 
because the lines are so, <laughs> what is it, left side aligned, and they're not really metrical either. It started that way, but my ear resists meter. I can hear it. I can hear meter, but I don't like it when it's in my <laughs> poems. I prefer syncopation. So it's usually better for, I prefer people hear me read first and then go to the poems because then they'll know why it's written in that way. Otherwise, I think folks would think it sounds prosaic, but to my ear, it's just, it's more of um, like the producer Timbaland, right? It's, it's in between meter. It's not on meter, which is why there's a lot of alliteration. It helps me to build a kind of velocity in the poem that helps with countering the fact that it's not in a steady foot or it's not using a steady metrical prosodic method. So I wanted there to be not just the idea of mutiny, which is a kind of revolt, particularly on a boat, which is, you know, that that poem, final poem for the Black Body, ties that in and tied to the Titalectics poem. But also, how do I not do what I did in the first book? Right. Which is very free verse. I don't think anything in there is, is a, a, a traditional meter. But mutiny, I think it gives a visual as though it is going to sound Shakespearean, but then it still dissolves all of that. Right. I want to touch on one of the words you used, which was velocity. Yes, yes. And we've talked about this a little bit before, mm-hmm. before you got here. But what I was struck by when reading the collection is that I found myself experiencing the collection different than most any other collection of poems I read, which is whatever pace I take linearly. Mm-hmm. And the impression I got from this book, there were, there were two that struck me sort of in ways of figuring how I was reading. And the first was that I had this sense that less than reading a, a project linearly. I was reading it in terms of layering. Mm, nice, I felt nice. like the poems were settling on top of each other. And part of it is the figure in the book. There's regularly you sort of calling attention to things being stacked on each other, mm-hmm. things being put in very close proximity. Yes. There was such a, I won't say strange, but an unexpected affinity where the poems seemed to create an almost geologic, and then title, and then sort of emotional layering all the way through the book. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the, the other way I found myself experiencing the book was there's that moment in, in Tabula Rasa, I think is where the, the figure first appears. But when the names lift off the speaker's shirt yes. and start to arrange in this constellation around his head, and there's a moment where they're referred to as compass points. Yes. And I felt this sort of light bulb moment Mm. where I felt that there was a kind of prevailing magnetism Mm -hmm. in the collection that (laughs) was both steered by some larger force, but also showing me the way to journey through the book. I don't know that either of those were sort of in your head in the making. Well, there are no sections to the book on purpose. They were suggested in a, not in a way as like, would you? We would want you to have sections. It was a question. Are you know? There are no sections. You're not even considering. I said no. I'm not considering sections. I wanted to go straight through because in my mind, I wanted it to feel as though it was an onslaught of poems. Like every time you turned the page, you had to keep going. But there's also with the idea of layering. It begins. I think it begins with a poem that, in its thesis, is saying that there is no thesis. And so, what I'm hoping readers do is they pick up on the fact that there's 
a lot of resistance at the beginning. And I mean, as far as the, what we think of as a political kind of resistance. And then it goes into consent. And then consent actually is a through line, I think, throughout the entire book. But mostly I'm thinking about power structures, the presence of a king in many ways, or the idea of rearranging what has been normalized to the point of perhaps uh, infantilization, <laughs> right? How, how we make these really adult themes seem sometimes a bit childish, like, you know, a dead deer is not something to just sneer at. As we saw one coming up the, the road and it was horrifying, right? And so to have these things just appear in poems as a symbol for or mask against what it is that we actually feel, which is our own vulnerability, right? So it's like, well, how do we just talk about what it is that we feel with us being the dead deer, as opposed to throwing a deer in there and having the flies, the maggots, you know, it becomes a kind of grotesque (laughs) situation, which I'm all for, but the intention behind mutiny is really to just constantly bump up against the reader's mind from wherever they are, And I think the mind of someone who is also a poet has a completely different reading (laughs) and maybe even emotional connection or disconnection with mutiny because of the way some of those critiques happen. But the layering is the ordering of the poems. I do think it starts in a way that is obviously, oh, these are the political poems. And then it becomes more personal, historical, maybe a little erotic. And then toward the end, it's a summary of all of those things. When you're talking about the way those things get layered into the poems. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I was struck by in the poem, and you were talking about consent, mm-hmm. is is consent, yes, and a kind of stewardship and mm-hmm. responsibility. There's this sense that all the way through the book, there were so there was so much of it that was familiar. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in terms of, oh, these are the things I expect. I think you skewer that expectation <laughs> of what a black poet is supposed to write about. Mm-hmm incredibly in the collection. But I think that, as you're saying, the collection is more attentive to the symbolic presence of these both imagistic tropes, Mm -hmm. these formal restraints and expectations, even the experiments and the manipulations of those things. There is over and over this a sense that I get that coming out of the poems, you are saying to us, I am renegotiating my relationship to what I absorb from the world and reshape in poems, which as you were saying, whether it's a poet bumping up against these or any reader bumping up Mm -hmm. against these, it's a way of asking them to reconsider their own relationship to and the way we just tend to glom on to figures and tropes and narratives Mm -hmm. and pain. Yeah. It's always reflexive. It's not the finger pointing outward because if for anyone who's read Thief in the Interior, they know there's a dead bull and second poem of the collection, there is an array of violences in the book. The dead crow is in one of the longer poems. Mutiny, again, mutiny is in conversation with that book as an antithesis in some ways. And I was going to say it just so happens. And it's also, I mean, because I'm also aware that because I'm part of a tradition that I'm not the first to have done those things. And so to make a kind of inquiry or even critique of those things, I'm also critiquing other poets 
the ones who've come before, the ones who are my contemporaries, and maybe even some who will come later. I don't want people to feel like they can't write about what they want to write about. I don't mind reading it. I mean, Dead Deer poems are some of my favorite poems. We talked about Bridget Begin Kelly last night. And there's Taylor Johnson, who comes up a lot when I talk about the dead deer. I don't want that poem that they've written to go away. It's one of the best poems about, you know, the vulnerability that uses an animal in that way that I've read. So it's not that. It is more of an awareness and thinking about possibility without taking offense to just the question being made. But it's first and foremost, a reflexive endeavor. It's about Okay, what have I been doing and what have I been thinking and how do I step away from from that for myself? And if anyone else wants to get involved, by all means, <laughs> you're welcome to do it. But yeah, this is my mutinous act against my own work. Right. The final poem sequence yes. that is part of the book structure that gives it from the 10,000 foot view, you can mm-hmm. sort of see how that helps shape the structure of mm-hmm. the collection. One of the things I've been struck by from Thief in the Interior is you are a deeply lyric poet. Yes. And not not in, I think, the the way we usually use that word as in terms of music, which I think you are, but the way you marshal music and subject matter as a reflection of your subject position. Absolutely. In the, the interiority. Yeah. yeah. Those poems to me are poems of both interrogation and also transformation of 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 you sort of saying, and if I'm, <laughs> I don't want to, want to write on your experience of, of writing these poems, but it, it was a, a kind of reckoning with a way of making that you could have very easily settled into. And a way a of reading too, which I'm just realizing now and having this conversation to read a poem and say, oh yeah, that's it. To give that poem absolute authority over anything that I would write in my own future, Right. Uh, which is to say that sometimes the inspiration became a way to neglect my own potential to innovate on something that exists. It's like, oh, well, why not just do what they've done? And that's a kind of reading that I think is negligent. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's negligent of possibility. It, it, it's, it stifles thinking. I want to write poems as a thinker and write poems that think their way through and that also ask readers to constantly think about what it is that they're engaging with. One of the questions that I've been getting recently about mutiny is there are strange words in it. Hematite, scolocyte, you know, these two stones. And I'm hoping people just get a dictionary and interact with the book as something that is organic and is changing them. All of that is to say, yes, it's it's a reckoning with writing, but also with a very active reading. How have we made it into something that is passive as opposed to an active always ever churning activity that requires and demands absolute attention in the moment that you're in the book. I think one of the expectations that we bring to any poem, and especially a new collection of poems by a poet we admire, is there's that moment of excitement where we just want to live in the world of the poem. But over and over in this collection, there are moments like that where I feel like Philip wants me to go do my homework <laughs> and not in a, not in a bad way, no, but in a way of, I think the poems so often in this collection are so attentive to what your attention has inherited mm-hmm. and the way you want that attention to reshape the poem and the way you want that attention to reshape what you're going to do next, which means that, yeah, so much of what we do now is passive. Mm-hmm. It's just a, 
trickle of information that is ever present. Mm -hmm. And it, it has a kind of flattening effect. And there are these moments in these poems where I, I feel over and over when you make those really intense portmanteau collisions of language or in some of the final poems where there are parentheticals yes, or there are ways you're manipulating line ending and enjambment as a kind of deferral, as a kind of delay. And there's this, in these poems, there's this rearrangement of our temporal experience of the poem, mm-hmm. the way syntax resolves. And, or doesn't. <laughs> or doesn't, absolutely. I mean, that was the next thing, right? Is, is the way they challenge us. I'm just curious a little bit about what made you want to, in whatever way we enter the poem, mm-hmm. whether it's through the ear or through a, a sort of breakdown of the syntax, through the symbolic and metaphorical ordering of the poem, what made you want to create those kinds of ruptures in attention and in the way we normally passively experience the poem? Sounds like a craft question, but also not. Because the, my answer is a craft answer, but it's also an answer of habitual aesthetics. That's just a thing that I do. I start with an image or I start with a sound. Sometimes both. Rarely an idea. With some of the final poems, I knew that I wanted to have a final poem for a tree, for water, for the moon, like the big ones. And I really only ended up with deer and the moon as far as like the big symbols, right? And maybe in a more contemporary way, the black body, right? The way that that term has been used. And so the formulation of the poem is organic already. It doesn't come with premeditations or solutions. It comes with (laughs) an inquiry, a question, a curiosity. How do I get this image to become something whole or something longer or something musical, something else? Or how do I get this sound to move throughout the poem And then maybe I want to stop using it. So if I stop using it, what is the contextual reason for me to stop doing that? All right. So then what if I want to go back to that sound? What is the contextual reason? So the poems are built structurally based off of rhetorical needs, the natural evolution of the image as I am imagining it, and the way that I think sound and content have to be in conversation with one another. So this is really, it is a question of craft, but also just the way that I'm mixing my episodic mind it's like flashcards always <laughs> in my mind with the things that I've learned through reading other poets, reading craft books, going to uh, spoken word events, you know, listening to slam poets, the cadence of that, listening to instrumentals, right? How do I mimic a drum? Can't really do it. I can't do it. I'm not going to say it can't be done. So what is the closest that I can get to that? And I think with syntax, right, to begin with, Something Vivi Francis, in my lecture, I talked about how she would begin with a preposition. So we already know what direction we're going, but we don't know where and we don't know why. And I think giving information that is most important to the emotional value and not necessarily to the, the subject. We don't need to know who's doing what and when and where. We might need to know how it felt. And then we can go into the who. But how it felt is really the reason why the poet even exists. Like it felt good to be touched. So, you might want to begin with, it was the touch. Like, the touch of who? doesn't matter. We're going to get there, right? Right. (laughs) So, to start with what is the peak interest of whoever is experiencing or whatever is experiencing that moment. And so, it's not going to be linear. 
it's not going to be remembered linearly. If I remember something that hurt me, I'm going to remember the hurt. And then I might remember where it came from. I'm rambling, but I like what I'm saying. So I'm not, <laughs> I just, but I'm hoping that it's leading toward an answer to your question, which I'm also hearing is why the linearity doesn't really exist. And, oh, it's also a question of time. Sasan Zamani, the interlude poem, right? And the note in the back that talks about the spiral of time until this, the time doesn't even matter anymore. You know, how do I get something like that across in a poem? It can't be linear. It has to be allowed to do what it's going to do. Would you read another poem from the book? Yeah. Well, we talked about syntax not concluding. So maybe final poem for the bullet, where it's just, <laughs> it doesn't really resolve. It pretends it resolves. Final poem for the bullet. When the bullets overhead ricocheted off the metal fence and junk cars gravestoning the junkyard, and when my uncle shouted for me and my friend to duck beneath the torrent of lead zip lining the air from an unseen source, and when screams scratched throats keenly till echoing the bullet din approaching no target with aim or intention precise enough to reach anyone but the innocent. And when my legs refused to unfold from beneath me to follow friend and uncle through the gangway of a neighbor's house until being alone was more frightening than hot shells finding all the ways to smolder through. And when my brutal desire to live led me to safety acquired in an alley where rat corpses perfumed away gun smoke of which I'd grown nostalgic. And when laughter broke from our lungs, as if surviving didn't mean tomorrow's fury could second chance us toward alternative deaths. And when I looked back within myself at the pleasure fear made possible, and when my ten-year-old breeziness degraded to, damn, we alive, and the piss-sprayed Colt 45 crackpipe-laden alley corroborated echoes of my voice and the climate of what tried to kill us the weather itself cracking its neck into thunder until an hour's dismantling manifested a system of continuous reckoning with the possibilities of every broken bottle mirroring my prostration's erotics. And if when I think back to that alley leading to an empty lot where a house of addictions once laughed from glassless windows, if I render this rememory to reclaim that bullet-lost child, and if I find him glistening like a just-born species, wearing the eyes of my mother and the lips of my father, holding a sword in one hand and a scale in the other, counting backward from ten, as when in the hollow of a nightmare, the nightmare's attendee suspects zeros nothing, brings back the world the nightmare fed from. As if at the end of the end was a lesson, as if at the end of the end was a form. I love that poem. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. place I'm going to start <laughs> is a structural question. Yeah. That anaphoric refrain, 
that holds the poem to that left margin, Mm -hmm. when, 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 is is such an interesting choice to me because there's also, there's this, there's this gesture towards narrative of expectation, narrative arc. This thing happens and here are the things that proceed from that. Right, right. But structurally on the page, the, the poem keeps in terms of just temporally keeps rebooting right, right. <laughs> that what story could be told, which means it reboots how that story is going to end. Mm-hmm. And then there's also an, an, that moment at the end where you, where you shift it, where it becomes entirely conditional. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, <laughs> if, if. Mm-hmm. and I just, I, I've read and reread and reread this poem and I can't, I can't quite, I mean, I think this is intentionally, I can't quite wrap my head around this particular structure. Mm, mm-hmm. And I just want to, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you read the poem because I wanted to ask you about, and I think you've answered the question a little bit by what you said before, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but this resistance to narrative resolution. Yeah, that was a traumatic moment and trauma doesn't resolve, or at least it doesn't resolve that easily. I think it's something that I'm not a psychologist. I don't want people like, oh, you know, emailing you. He's wrong about trauma. <laughs> You'll live. What I, for me, what trauma does is it, it resonates. And what we can do is we can tune fork our way to make it resonate a little more softly as we continue through. I think we are forever changed by what happens to us, depending on how it happens. Some things we forget, some things stay with us. That win doesn't resolve because the win is constant. So it's it's not, you know, when this happened, then this happened. It's when this happened, oh, I'm still in this moment. When this happened, I'm still in this moment. And so to know the aftermath of it isn't the point, it's the, the initiating factor. It's the fact that it had begun to begin with. And it's conditional, the ifs, because there's still a resolution with that. It's more wishful thinking. I use possibility a lot when I talk about mutiny, but what is a way to imagine a kind of second half to the win. So when this happens, when this happens, sure. But if this happens, or if this happens, right? Because one of the images is one of the, what card is it? I believe it's the judgment card with the sword and the scale. If there could be judgment, right? If that symbolic endeavor could manifest as a child who was, who has these two parents, right? Who has a life that they wanted to live that in the wind could have been lost, right? But even that can't resolve. So that gets a a period because we're not ever going to get to that moment because there was no judgment. It just was an occurrence that is a thumbtack on the map of my life, right? If we were to make a, a cartographic or some kind of way of measuring the different instances in my life, it would just be a thumbtack. And that maybe it'll be red, I don't know, to stand out more, which is why at the end of the, the poem, it questions its own integrity at the end of the end is a form. Is this actually a form? It might seem to be a kind of uh, patterning, and maybe it is, but to what effect? If at the end of the end was a lesson, what is there to be learned from inexhaustible winds with impossible conditions? <laughs> and if we were to call that a form, this ending, right? What has been formed from it? It's a very intentional poem, 
all of my poems are intentional. I overthink in many ways, which makes it fun for me and maybe taxing for readers or maybe vice versa in some ways. But that's exactly that's what I was thinking. When things can't be finished after they've begun and when things don't have a beginning such that the if can even be entertained in that way. It raises for me, again, that experience that the poems create where they ask you to go do some work. But there's also in a poem like this where, where we sort of, when we lift back away from the poem, it's asking us to think about our relationship to the way that manifests out here in the world. Yes. And the expectation, I think in some ways, to be able to, for someone to say, okay, we've put a pin in it. Mm-hmm. We've marked it on the map of your life. Can we move on? Mm-hmm. Can't we just let this go? Can we stop talking about this? And I think a poem like that demands a reckoning with, with that expectation yeah. of you to get past your trauma. Mm-hmm. But the poem reminds us is that the, the temporality of trauma is always suspended. Always. Always. Even the Port of Veneer poem, right? The question is something to the effect of, well, can't we just leave it in the past? And it's for what? Or for whom? Who does that serve to not talk about this massacre that happened right. in Texas? And it could be one of the through lines of the book with Tidalectics, the Tidalectics poem, with the January 28th poem. Why talk about these things? Why do we keep going back to, why can't we just move forward? That question is never asked of anyone who has evaluated their own lives. It's always asked from a space of discomfort. And that discomfort, I believe, is always mistaken as itself a form of trauma. It's like, no, you just, your heart dropped once, right? Or you're annoyed. Your annoyance is not at all equivalent to someone constantly being afraid of leaving their house for whatever reasons, right? And so, to not make these false equivocations as though like this trauma, this relentless oppression is the same as you feeling as though you don't want to wait in line. <laughs> it's like they're not, they're not the same. One is not a complaint. One is a, a standing up for the right to live in a particularly peaceful, free fashion. And the other is a right to do whatever the fuck you want. Like those are not the same. One is a complaint, right? Which is this, oh, I want to, I don't want to do this. I want to do this. And the other one is sometimes a plea, like let us live. And there's this, this weird way that they become convoluted. It's like they're not equal. They're not the same. And it's usually from folks who have no idea what suffering is. And not because they haven't suffered, but because they haven't processed anything that's happened to them because they're too busy trying to get away from it. But then it keeps happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's another, another story, maybe another book of poetry. But um, it's not my job to make sure people can maintain their comfort because they haven't processed their own shit. Especially if I'm calling myself a poet. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that's the opposite of what, <laughs> what my job is. Right. It's that moment when the expectation, maybe not even with a reckoning, but with uh, just an acknowledgement mm-hmm. of asking that person who doesn't want to be annoyed. I think in some way what they're annoyed by is the reality that when they get unkinged, when they get moved off their spot in the world, they're seeing that as a kind of trauma Mm -hmm. and then using that to make it equivalent to 
the sort of thing we see in that poem. Mm -hmm. And they're not. Mm -hmm. As you said, dealing with your own stuff and sort of recognizing what's going on in your life doesn't then mean that you are in the same position as someone who absolutely who lives in this lives in this body lives in this situation mm -hmm. especially since it's one that was largely perpetuated and created by the person who doesn't want to be annoyed who doesn't want to be annoyed right it's this it's a cycle self perpetuating the myths that people create about other folks when they project it it becomes a reality of those other people it's like no this is still your myth it doesn't belong to me. I don't accept it. It is all yours. And the fact that it came out of your imagination should concern you more than whatever it is that you've projected onto other people. You created this. What does that say about you? You should be horrified, humiliated, embarrassed. I don't know. There are a lot of words <laughs> to that in your imagination, you've developed not only a, a, a mythos, but a system to keep creating these ideas about other people and to your placement and relationship to those people. It's bizarre, <laughs> right? Because you're allowed to constantly recycle that no matter what it is that we do. And I'm being vague here because it is a vagueness. It's not just about race or gender or sexual. It's all of these things. And sometimes they're compounded, right? But whatever the case may be, you can't be straight enough. You can't embrace whiteness enough. You can't be quiet enough. You can't chew your food properly enough or hold the right fork enough times. The goalpost is always going to shift. What kind of mind <laughs> makes that a scenario for someone else to live in? That is the true question. I feel like what you've just said is the conversation we should be having about American poetry in some way. Not that mm -hmm. we can't have it about poems, but it just seems like we sublimate that necessary conversation to conversations of what a poem is supposed to be or mm -hmm. what a poem is supposed to do mm -hmm. and why aren't more poems written in 2021, 2022, wherever you were in the timeline, why do more poems not do this thing I want them to do? I want them to do. Yeah. Which is a, a stand-in for why does this person mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. align themselves with my expectation of how to move through the world because I want theirs to more resemble mine or not impede mine. Not impede mine, yeah. We need both conversations. Not, well, not that one about the <laughs> impediment, <laughs> there being a false impediment. We need the conversation about what a poem is about. But particularly a lot of poets of color, I will even say, even in recent times with the experimentations that Black writers have been doing with writing, it's rare that our craft is spoken about. It usually is, oh, this is a sad book. It has savage dexterity. And like, there are 16 sonnets that are revolving around a sestina that have hip hop quotes as titles. And the only thing you want to talk about is theme. And so there's a, it has to be balanced. It has to be balanced where we're talking about the line, but we're also saying that this enjambment is informed by this political position or this social position. I think oftentimes what does get privileged is just the identity. Identity, identity. It's like, yeah, I live in this body. I know. I'm also a craftsperson. <laughs> Some of these words are spelled backwards. Can we talk about that? And people don't want to do that. And it's because the craft isn't, and this goes back to what you were just saying about impediment. The craft doesn't reflect their idea of what craft is. And even witnessing the notion of how to simultaneously embrace and undermine Western traditions. For instance, if it were to be something written in Terzarima, it would be invisibilized by the identity. 
So again, you can't win. The goalpost is, is constantly is constantly moving. So I don't think you're in the wrong with that. I think we need both. But oftentimes it's, and I've been really happy with Mutiny's presence in the world because people have been getting into the depths of it. They did not necessarily do that with Thief. I just want to make sure that we get to have our work spoken about in the way that Wallace Stevens had his work spoken about. There are so many essays about T.S. Eliot, so many essays about Sylvia Plath, but even she falls victim to her sadness, her suicide, her depression. But there's still a way that her work is evaluated with far more intention and and beauty and criticality than Rita Dove's work has ever been considered, right? Alberto Rios, nobody talks about what his work is doing on the page. If they talk about his work at all, uh, I hope that's not offensive to say, I don't think that people are talking about the work of Juan Felipe Herrera. It's just the way that, and he's a fantastic poet, by the by the way, and I say that not to take away from the others I, I mentioned, but he's an inspiration to some of the ways I'm thinking about work now with the surrealism and this injustice, the way that a lot of poets um, who are legends to many of us have never really had proper scholarship written about the craft of the work. How are they using or defying meter? You know, how are they bringing international traditions into the work? Things like that. That was a long answer to <laughs> to a question I don't even think you asked. <laughs> but you know what it actually does? It brings me back to, and I'm, I don't want to mangle the, the interlude poem, Sasa and Zamani. Yes, yes. And thinking about the way that poem talks about memory mm-hmm. and the the sort of storehouse that memory is. And it speaks to what you're talking about now in that both conversations are important. Mm-hmm. That it's not just recognizing a sort of thematic reception of, of a poet's work or the lack of it, but a necessary acknowledgement of and curiosity about the way they make the thing they make. And to see that inflection point between craft and theme and story and the way that person moves through the world in their skin, their gender, their sexuality, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all of the myriad pressures that shaped them, that crafted them as a human Mm -hmm. and crafted their work on the page. And how sad it is that for so many writers to have been left out of the conversation historically because they did not conform in their body or did not conform on the page and that that there will reach a point where both will be forgotten Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. necessary for us to vivi used the metaphor last night when we were talking about table of american poetry we need to keep adding leaves to the table yeah yeah and then one of the the figures that i was so struck by in this book is that moment when you talk about the thumbs putting together and bringing together the stitches. Yeah. That poem moves from what seems like it's going to be a story, right? This, this the narrative never lasts. <laughs> Into the names doing what they have to do. But then it becomes more so a poem about, in a strange way, if the names could have agency, what would that be like? And could they have it in this realm? And I think for me, the answer was no. What it would look like would be here, a laughter like static into which the name slip. It'll be going into that kind of pleasure. 
into where the openings have broken most free before the eager thumbs work nimbly to sew it all back closed, which is to keep them from returning there, right? To keep them from getting to that laughter. How do we, or how do you as a poet, how do we keep the names from slipping into the static? We write about them. We talk about them. And if someone who can do it better than we can, meaning they're, they have a, the acumen of you know, critical writing that maybe we don't, we say, you should probably do this. You might want to do this. Could you do this? I think you should do this. <laughs> because what ends up happening is the folks who are part of that community ends up being the ones who are the, the sole keepers of that. And in many ways, that is probably the absolute safest way of doing it. And I want to say this actually just to put it out there and to make sure that it could be defied. It's about institutionalizing the work to keep it safe. Institutions are a thing that folks are, they hate so much. I'm not one of the ones who hate them. It depends on who's running it and how they're running it. Because there are places like the DuSable Museum in Chicago. That's an institution. I think when people say institution, what they mean are these places that have pharmaceutical money (laughs) or they use oil money to do whatever they want without that money going directly to the folks who have been harmed by said, you know, funders. I'm with that, right? But I'm careful about not saying institutions need to go down. I am alive because of a lot of places that are to be called institutions exist. And so there's a way that our work is safest culturally in the hands of the people who are part of the community, you know, the person who made it. But as far as like temporally, it's places that have safe archival spaces. And I, I really wish there was a way to just get some of those spots outside of these million dollar, billion dollar institutions so that they can be safe somewhere closer to home. And I say that I think of how all of these universities are gentrifying these neighborhoods. So let's say there was a home museum. Someone decided they were going to archive whatever. And then the school comes buying a property all around them. Is that archive still safe? I don't think so, personally. So then it has to constantly move. Things get forgotten, get left in storage, get destroyed. So that's what I mean when I say the safety of an institution, that the physical space, the way that we're in this music area, these records are not melting. (laughs) Right. You know, it's temperature controlled, but it still has to be a way for the ones who understand the work the most to be able to build a culture around it. And that's not a collaboration I'm necessarily excited about. I don't have any other answers to that. But what I try to do, which is what I was beautifully invited to do, is to just write the, the lectures, write the essays, and just publish them and hope people will read them and point people toward them. Word of mouth used to be the way of doing it, but now I don't know if how that works anymore. So maybe a tweet or two. I don't know. It's a, I mean, it's a hard question to answer. You ask anyone, they'll have several different answers, particularly if they have a different kind of imagination for how to build space and hold space. I am at this moment not that person, but I do know that there are folks whose papers are completely gone because they were not in something as simple as a temperature-controlled room. And that's horrifying. So that's where I am with 
with that. I would like for my work to be somewhere where anyone could get to it. They don't need to be a student of that place. They don't need to fill out however many forms. It just they go in, they put their gloves on, let them take pictures. Who cares? I mean, because that's another way of controlling someone else's narrative. You can't take pictures of it. Of course, not flash photos because that can destroy it. So now I'm rambling. I want all of this to stay. But this is because it's, it's showing the process of just how complicated this can get. But what I can do is just continue to uplift and speak about other people's work. That was a hard question. That was the hardest question I've probably been asked in a while. Because it's not an easy answer to how to keep people's work safe and in circulation. It does bring me back to mutiny. Mm-hmm. Because... Another one of my aha moments with the book was when you talk about palimpsest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I feel like that is part of what you're talking about now, the way in which things get written on top of other things, the yeah. ways in which even things we might very dutifully preserve, might hang onto or create space for is always, even from a well-meaning benefactor mm-hmm. or from just attrition of time and environment of being erased and overlaid and having that original thing effaced in some way. And I think there are there are ways in which you utilize that figure in the book beautifully. Thank you. And the okay. concept of the of the self that animates a lot of the poems and that startling poem where you have the black bodies represented in that slave ship as ditto, 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 mm-hmm. ditto. And thinking mm-hmm. about the ways in which There is both a layering there and an erasure. But it also speaks to this concern, which is how are we stewards of our own work, our own movement through the world, Mm -hmm. how that's going to affect others in our community, and how we're going to then, when we are not doing this thing, whether we stop doing it or are stopped from doing it, who's going to take care of it? Right, right. That's why teachers are really important, mentors. There, there are many ways of doing it without calcifying it in an institution. So, for instance, if I am being mentored by a poet, I'm going to also read that poet's work. And I'm also going to share that poet's work with my own mentees. If I take on the responsibility of knowing that it, I exist because someone else thought that mentoring me and helping me navigate through all of this was important, that might be the most organic way, which is the community of teaching. And that doesn't even have to be one where there's someone who has all authority because that, that turns into its own problem too. But I've learned a lot about different poets just from having conversations with other poets who've worked with, you know, said poet. I picked up Sonia Sanchez's book in high school because a friend of mine was like, you should read Sonia Sanchez. So when I say word of mouth, I mean something like that. It moves a lot more slowly and it doesn't necessarily keep the work safe as far as like, if these are the final copies of the thing, right? We're having issues with that. I say we, meaning the poets, having issues with that with Gwendolyn Brooks's work. It's becoming harder and harder to get collected. And that's, I mean, we should be frightened by that. I don't know who we had to have that conversation with. It is important that a collected Gwendolyn Brooks exist as soon as possible. I can teach from what I have. My book the pages are falling out. I can figure out a way to glue those pages back together. I think it may be one or two more moves. That book is done for. Right. There's no other way for me to get that book again because it is out of print. That's 
where I was going originally with the question. If we're not thinking about the object or what a poet, poet creates and how people can tangibly deal with it, then there is a way of maintaining their life and their life's work through, I think, mentorship and teaching. You saying that makes me think that my friend Ron says, do you know Ron Villanueva? Oh, R.A. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good people. He says his favorite poem in every collection is the acknowledgments page. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's the place where you see distilled the poet acknowledging their mentors, their peers, the people who are who have shaped them and have shaped the work. Yeah. And yeah. where where you see that work having been shepherded or stewarded or or taken care of by the magazines that mm-hmm. that took care of it. And the institutions and organizations that cared for that poet's work. Yeah. And I love that idea. And I think it's because that's for all of our interconnectedness of the moment, that's one of the places that I have found so much of the work I care about. Because if you don't, if you haven't met someone until you've been reading their work for years, mm-hmm. but haven't met them until today, yeah. one of the places you get to know them is reading the work of the people who have already gotten to know them. Oh, absolutely. I used to love the, the acknowledgements page to see who I knew helped this person. I was like, oh, I, kn- I knew they helped them with this book. I knew they had their their touch in this book. Even if it's not editing a poem, you know that they probably had a phone conversation saying, you're doing well, keep it up, X, Y, Z. My acknowledgements page is, in Mutiny is different because there's some point my my memory has been really, really bad. And so what I had to do was think about anyone that I talked to specifically about the work as opposed to anyone who's just supportive. I would prefer to have everyone in there. But I was like, I talked to them about this poem, this poem, this poem, this. So it's really a poet to poem correlation. But in Thief, it was everybody I could think of. I also learned about other poets because if I would look at a Terrence Hayes book and see where he got a poem published, I would go to that journal and then see who else was published in that journal and reading it. So yes, it's an intricate network. Just have to pay attention to it and really invest in it. You want me to read another poem? I would love to. Let's see what we got. Shame. It begins with a memory of feet and above the swollen ankles of Grandma Elizabeth's leg, cartographic with varicose veins, bulbous and slurring beneath my fingertips as I traced what I thought was the blue of sorrow, lacing its way like an endless brook through her body, which was a body whose toes I had rubbed one at a time with lotion to the sound of her chewing on a peppermint or breathing slow and hard as I relieved whatever journey from beneath her feet sour with duty and the power to make a walk from room to room into a meal and game of checkers where I learned that stacking two soldiers made a king which would become useful later in life as I found myself building lonesome towers with my body and another's while we cataloged our grievances with the sharing of tongues. And here, one desire usurps another, but I'll mend this memory toward honesty, for my grandmother's feet knew speed and precision when necessary, to run across the squeaking floor for a broom, to whack the shit out of me if I frightened her while she exited the bathroom, pausing right as she turned off the bathroom light and let her fingers linger on the knob just a bit, as though anticipating the boy me's hunger to hear her scream with a round soprano, stupid, you trying to kill me? 
And here again, the truth stalls because beneath me on the first floor where her room was a kingdom of perfumes, shawls, and jewelry, this woman up and died while I laid in bed on the second floor right above her. And I was sure the chill I felt was either her passing through the floor and through me, then through the roof and into the sky where the morning sun was still cool and from which chickadees dropped their small bodies into the grass for seeds to pulverize in trees, or it was the angel of my thinking, unblanketing from me my own innocence, knowing that my old lady went somewhere and left her body behind, to be found, by her children. And for a moment, I was closest to her, just a single story away, meaning the narrative that was the air itself, crawling between my floorboards and her ceiling was the last thing we shared, and no one else can have that. And here, the dark bathroom and the metal doorknob with her fingers placed on the chilly arc in the darkness is how she slowly unlocked me from myself, like the sun unlocked from my body its own shadow. And I hated myself for being so unwilling to let death do what death does and witness the final days of her hardly sipping water, her lying in bed alone and endlessly tired, and my selfish teenage self is here now, looking up from the cloud of this memory, shaking his head and swearing under his breath, swearing at me even now, too shy or too absurd with shame to run from that old house and into the distraction of maple tree seeds whirly gigging their papery blades into the weeds and the white fluff of dandelions, and into the street, and scream something about it being too much, or not knowing how to love then, so lay the fuck off me, man, just lay the fuck off. So I must forgive him, who is my earlier self, his avoiding that room, his avoiding her eyes yellowed by chemo, his avoiding her feet, and his now missing that cane tapping out the minutes of the day that now his later self holds in the highest regard. As I lay alone to sleep, listening to my downstairs neighbor make love in his loudest voice. Philip, it's been an absolute pleasure this spending this fun. time with you. I'm so grateful to you for coming. I'm so grateful to you for this book, for these poems. And I'm so happy for the people who are going to get to meet this book. I am too. I'm happy that there are people who want to meet it, you know. It's hard to get an audience. That's all I want. I want people to teach it first and foremost. And then, you know, that we're talking about word of mouth. Yeah. yeah. Students talk about books they love. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at thesuwanneereview.com. To discover what's happening at The Review, visit our website or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Suwannee Review. Until next time, this is The Suwannee Review, new since 1892.